You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. You know, I don't know if there's any other book of the Bible, and all of the books of the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament as well, where more of the character and the nature of God is revealed to us than here in the book of Genesis. And then another added plus feature to this book of the Bible is the many foreshadowings of Christ that are contained within it as well. And so as we move through this book of the Bible, I'll draw your attention to each and every one of them. Every story has a beginning, and the story of our world is no different. Today, Pastor Mike starts a new series in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. It's the origin story, the book about how it all began. And the first character that you meet is God. He was there from the start. He's the maker, the one who orchestrated it all, Pastor Mike shares that the book of Genesis reveals a lot about who God is and his plan for the world. So stay with us as we begin to unpack what happened in the beginning. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis chapter 1 as he begins his message, In the Beginning, God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is a part of what we've called the Origins Series, Studies in the Book of Genesis. And this message, the title is, In the Beginning, God. So let's go ahead and read that text of Scripture, and then we'll open up in a word of prayer. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that brings us right to our first point, an amazing statement that says it all. And I'm referring to the phrase, in the beginning, God. Now, this opening statement, think about this, is not given so that we can wax philosophical, but is rather presented simply as a statement of truth to be received with unquestioning faith. Notice here in our text of Scripture, no argument is entered into to prove the existence of God. It just simply says, in the beginning, God. So there's no going back and forth about this whole issue. Instead, his existence is affirmed as a fact to be believed. And so in this one brief phrase, every fallacy 
which man has invented concerning God is blown holes in. It sort of like falls into a category of what I've referred to as a set of denials. Some of the more popular opinions of man as it relates to their existence and their beginnings and their origins, there's a couple of things that I want to address, like, for example, atheism, materialism, pantheism, the religion of science. And I don't know if you knew that or not, or if you've ever heard it suggested in that way, but, you know, there actually is a belief in the religion of science. And some people approach science in that way, as sort of like a religion. So I want you to consider all of those things that I just mentioned in relationship to our opening statement here, this amazing statement, in the beginning, God. And so as it relates to, first of all, atheism, let's take them in that order that I just mentioned. That is that there is no God, there's no belief whatsoever in God. So the clearest negative statement is the denial of atheism by what is recorded for us here in this phrase, in the beginning God. You see, if God was in the beginning, then there was and is a God. And how can it be otherwise? To say less would be to say that God is dependent upon creation, being subject to the same laws and therefore could not be at the beginning of creation as Genesis says he was. So it just blows holes in the whole concept and man's belief of atheism. That is, there is no God. A second denial in the set of denials is that of materialism. When the text says that God was in the beginning, before creation, it sets him apart from creation and therefore apart from the matter of which all else is made. Ours is not an entirely materialistic universe. We know that for a fact. There's a spiritual aspect of the world in which we live. And moreover, since God created matter, matter did not always exist which is what a true philosophy of materialism teaches. And so it blows holes in that theory as well. That is materialism. And then thirdly, it also, as it relates to this opening statement, in the beginning God, here in Genesis, denies pantheism. Pantheism is the philosophy that God is in matter or is matter. Sort of like the metaphysical force in the universe. It underlies most pagan religions. But if God created matter, now think about this, then he is separate from it and is superior to it. And any religion that worships matter is idolatrous. So these and many other false philosophies err because they begin with man or matter and then work itself up to God, if indeed they get so far. But Genesis stands against them all when it begins with God and sets them forth as the originator of all things. But what about the religion of science? Creationism, the Big Bang Theory, and so on and so forth. Well, the sentence, in the beginning God, think about this, is the most profound sentence or phrase ever written. We must see that these words already take us beyond the farthest point that can be viewed by science. You see, science can only take us back to the Big Bang, which really is nothing more than a theory, to the moment of creation. But if that original colossal explosion obliterated anything that came before it 
as science suggests, then nothing before that point can be known scientifically, including the cause of that explosion. The Bible comes forward at that point to tell us simply, in the beginning, God. We may want to bring God down into our little microscope where we can examine him and subject him to the laws of matter, of cause and effect, which we can actually understand. But fret as we might, God does not conform to our desires. He confronts us as the one who is in the existence before anything we can even imagine and who will be there after anything we can imagine. And ultimately, it is he alone with whom we have to do. And so it just blows holes in all of those theories and opinions that man have that men hold. It's a set of denials, this one phrase, for it declares for us the existence of God, of an infinite, omnipotent, personal God. Now, I want you to consider with me for a moment that word created. In the beginning, God created. And that word created, and by the way, let me also add, that word God in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word Elohim in the Hebrew language. And it speaks of the plurality of God. You see, uh, the Trinity was working together in concert to create the physical universe. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And And I'll give you a couple of cross references for that in just a moment. But it's Elohim. And that word created is also an interesting word in the original Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word bara, which actually translated into our English language, the description is the ability or the capacity to make something out of nothing. And only God has the capacity and the ability to do that. Like, for example, a carpenter uh, takes a piece of lumber and he molds it and shapes it and cuts it and paints it and varnishes it and he can make it into like a piece of furniture, right? Or an artist on a canvas. He can take the paints and the colors and create something wonderful, a beautiful work of art. But both of those examples have material to work with. Whereas God is just completely different. God has the capacity to make something out of nothing. Now hold on to that thought, and I want you to think about it in relationship to ourselves and how God has taken us and is working within our lives, the creative genius of God, the master potter, and doing some wonderful things in and through our lives. So hold on to that thought. But anyway, God created, bara. He created the physical universe out of nothing. So God is the great originator and initiator, and in the ignoring of these truths, all of the fallacies, all of man's opinions that don't hold water, because of that, men fall into basic error in all his human schemes. Why? Because he embraces false theology and false philosophy. Think about it this way, and this is why it's so important, particularly in these first couple of chapters in the book of Genesis. Think about this. The way that we view our beginnings alter our choices, our outlook, and the way that we live our lives. Isn't that true? You know, if you don't put God behind creation, there's no reason for our existence. The Bible tells us that God created all things. And that is why there is meaning in life and why there are absolute standards 
that do not change. Laws that govern the universe. Laws that have been laid down for us by God himself. God tells us what is right. God tells us what is wrong. And that's also why there is meaning in life. And that is why you and I, who believe in this God who's being recommended to us here in chapter 1, can very well say that our chief reason for our existence is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And, that, and that's exactly God's desire for us as well, that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. I want you to understand this as well. This is not only the beginnings and origins of our physical universe, but this is also the beginnings of sin and God's plan of redemption here in the book of Genesis. As a cross-reference for this, the book of Revelation in chapter 13 and verse 8, for example, it gives us an indication that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were gathered together even before he created the physical universe, caused it to uh, come into existence, before he spoke the word, and they were already mapping out the plan of redemption for mankind, even before the foundations of the world. And in a couple of different places, we are told exactly that. Now, in context here in the book of Revelation in chapter 13, in verse 8, this was recorded, or actually it was a, a prophecy, it was a part of a vision that John, the beloved apostle, had received while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos for his faith in Jesus Christ. And, and he's given, uh, he's sort of like placed in a time capsule and catapulted into the future. And the future that he's seeing now is actually the seven years of tribulation. And the Antichrist is about to be revealed. And so with that said, and in context, we are told in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the Antichrist, that is whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So listen, your name, my name, was written in the Lamb's book of life even before God spoke into existence our physical universe. You see, God has that capacity to know how things are going to turn out, how things are going to work out, the choices that we're going to make, even before we were a twinkle in our parents' eyes, you see. God knew on such and such a date that you were going to give your life to Christ, that you were going to make that decision. And on the basis of that knowledge, he wrote your name in his book of life, the Lamb's book of life. So the whole idea I want you to understand here is that this is not only the beginning of the physical universe, but also the beginnings of sin, as we're about to discover, Adam and Eve, our first parents, but then also God's plan of redemption. So in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, we see the necessity for redemption was something that was foreseen and the plan provided for by God the Father through his son Jesus Christ. So Christ before the foundation of the world was even formed, it was ordained Jesus was to become the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So thus redemption was no afterthought. It was no repairing of failure, but God's purpose from the beginning. He has called us and has a kingdom prepared for each and every one of us. So here, think about it in this way, as we are about to 
launch into this new series of studies as we relate to Genesis, what Genesis is all about. Here, in this book of the Bible, particularly in the beginnings of this book of the Bible, God was creating a field on which his plans were to be carried out and his power manifested. Remember, God is the master artist, his creative genius. You know, think about all of the different facets of life and uh, how that he's created them, not only created them, but how he's able to sustain them. He is the creative genius behind all of that. He truly is the master potter. And in his creating of humanity, his burning desire was that of what? Revealing himself more than anything else. And his love and his grace and his mercy that we might glorify him here now and, as I mentioned before, enjoy him forever. So think of as we approach Genesis in that way. And I also got to tell you, I'm, I'm really excited about sharing this new series of studies with you and, and, and studying this book of the Bible for a, a couple of other reasons as well. Because I, you know, I don't know if there's any other book of the Bible, and all of the books of the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament as well, where more of the character and the nature of God is revealed to us than here in the book of Genesis. And then another added plus feature to this book of the Bible is the many foreshadowings of Christ that are contained within it as well. And so as we move through this book of the Bible, I'll draw your attention to each and every one of them. As we see these wonderful pictures and foreshadowings of Christ here in the Old Testament, in this particular book of the Bible, the book of beginnings. So those are just some of the other reasons why I'm pretty excited about sharing this new series of studies with you. But anyway, in the beginning, God. That's our first point. Now that brings us to our second point. And notice there in verse 2, we are told that this earth, this globe of ours, the world, was without form and void. That is in its pre-existent shape. It was without form. It was without void. Now, if you consider those words, form and void, in the original Hebrew language and translate it into English words, it would suggest the idea of waste and emptiness. Waste and emptiness. So literally, in this stage, that is our world, the pre-existent world, literally, in this stage, it was, think of it in this way, it was formless and it was lifeless. It was nothing more than a huge, shapeless, objectless mass of matter. The gaseous and solid elements were for the moment commingled without any organized structure or form. And then notice also the way that it's depicted for us as it goes on here in verse 2. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now this is interesting because it actually implies and it has been suggested, and I'm just passing this along to you, that this pre-existent matter, our globe, our world, existed in a fluid or liquid or molten form. Sort of interesting. So the picture then, think about this, that I've just painted for you, is one of chaos, confusion, and disorder. Our pre-existent world. Let me say that again. This is a picture of chaos, confusion, and disorder. 
Now, I got to tell you something. I can't but help to feel that this description has also another meaning for us, another implication. And I'm not alone in this opinion. Could it be, let me suggest this for you, could it be that God was also wanting to reveal the chaotic, confused disorder of the unregenerated souls of mankind? Think about it. That word chaos, for example, is an emblem of the unrenewed soul without order existing in a state of spiritual ruin. And that's the way that an unbeliever, someone who's unregenerated, someone who hasn't made that decision for Christ, that's their spiritual state. It's one of ruin. For example, in the book of Psalms, in chapter 1 and verse 4, and if you know anything about that first psalm, the first couple of verses, well, the whole psalm actually is a picture in contrast. It contrasts the believer and the unbeliever and the fruit that comes forth from their lives. And in verse 4, the ungodly or the unbeliever, the first three verses of that psalm talks about the fruitfulness of the believer, the person who knows God and is walking with God and their lives are full and rich and blessed and fruitful. But then in contrast, he goes on, the psalmist, to address the unbeliever. And he says, the ungodly are not so. Their lives aren't fruitful, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. There's no consistency within their lives, you see. There's no fruitfulness, right? And there are so many other verses of Scripture throughout the Bible that convey the same idea of the unregenerated souls of man. Therefore, as it relates to the unbeliever, there is needed a special process of rearrangement to evolve symmetry and beauty from its confusion. Or, as I mentioned before, God has the capacity to make something out of nothing. You know, I wonder if it's an analogy. Our world, our globe, in its pre-existence format, does it have another meaning than just simply that? Was God trying to get a message over to us about the unregenerated soul of man? You see the parallels between the two. So there is a need, a special process of rearrangement to evolve symmetry and beauty from its confusion. And again, as I mentioned, that's the business that God is in the capacity that only he has to make something out of nothing. And it's so beautifully illustrated by Christ himself during his public ministry. Think about the people who engaged Christ, his followers. Think about who they were before and what they had become after meeting with the Christ. In my Father's house there's a place for me in my father's house where I long to be. When something gets close to an ending, we naturally turn our attention to the beginning. When a child is about to graduate, we look at baby pictures. When a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death, we go over the story of how we met. When we pack up our stuff and move away from a house, we remember the first times we walked in the door. 
And as we draw close to the end of days, it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, harvestnyc.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcasts. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time, here, in my Father's house.